Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Hudson Institute. Uh, thank you all for joining us for a discussion on the future of China's political economy with two really leading and enlightening analysts of China's political economy, Dr. John Lee and Leland Miller. Uh, during much of the rolling post-2007 worldwide economic crisis, the authoritarian economic model of the People's Republic of China seemed very much to be on the rise. To a great many observers, the PRC's command economy, which is administered by authoritarian technocrats, unburdened by many popular political pressures, seemed fitter and much better equipped to navigate the topsy-turvy world of global markets than more open economic and political systems. Many concluded the PRC model was better equipped for the 21st century, and authoritarian regimes around the world consciously sought to emulate that at home. This is very much less the case now. Indeed, somewhere along the line, according to analysts, I'm thinking here, uh, our colleague here at the Institute, Charles Horner, as well as Daniel Lynch out at USC, and a variety of other analysts around the world, have begun to conclude that China's rise has stopped. Nowadays, there's a steady stream of reports and analyses which show China's economy is facing some deep troubles at home. When you dig past the universally mistrusted official GDP figures, one sees mounting debt and erratic stock indices. Investment is contracting because of economic as well as geopolitical reasons. And there has been tremendous wasted investment because of staggering inefficiencies and serious overproduction capacity at home. We don't need to speculate archly or dramatically about what the consequences of all this will be. All economies have their ups and downs, but we can imagine how economic troubles are especially nerve-wracking for the party state in Beijing, whose rule, according to its own governing Leninist mythology, depends on its capacity to know history and to decide the right course out of the current dilemmas that it's facing. Right now, people are openly questioning the party and its economic stewardship, both within China and outside of it. And this will have far-reaching implications for PRC's conduct at home and internationally. So the question becomes, are we merely facing a slow, uh, slow and temporary hiccup in China's rise? Or is there something deeper and more enduring uh, that uh, recent uh, uh, data has, has revealed about the country's political system and economic system? Is capitalism with Chinese characteristics still indeed a plausible and attractive model for developing countries around the world? Or has it lost its luster as an alternative to more open systems? Now that we have come to a new inflection point in China's modern history, what indeed is next? To delve into these questions, I can really think of few better people uh, than our two speakers today. First, we're going to hear from Leland Miller, who is the president of the China Beige Book International, which, established in 2010, has become an indispensable source of information on China's economy. Um, uh, it's really great to have him here. Thanks for coming down. And f next, we'll, after that, we'll hear from Dr. John Lee, my colleague here at Hudson Institute, who's based in Sydney, Australia. Thank you. Leland. Thank you. Um, let's get this out of the way up front. This is not a cyclical slowdown. This is a long-term, temporary 
permanent slowdown uh, from high levels of growth down to we're probably going in the very low single digits. Uh, but I think rather than just preach about the slowdown that's happening and to come, it's helpful to, to look back at the track record and see what's happened over the past years and why we have such an uh, intense debate between the bulls out there who think China either will be okay or, or will do great or will bounce back in growth, and the bears who often think that, that every day is just another day closer to China's ultimate demise. Um, it, it's a very fiery debate. And it's one that's usually not based on data. So it's a lot of fun for me to look back and see what we've seen at China Beige Book and to tend to, to narrate, narrate that view. Uh, if you look back after 2008, you had a period from 2009 to 2011, which was a lender's heyday. Uh, while people were suffering in the United States and Europe and all around the world, China uh, enacted what was the, pretty much the largest stimulus program in human history. And everybody, and their friend and their grandma was able to get a loan, and that did a lot of things to spur growth. Now, what it was eventually to get people worried about this is the amount of debt that was, that was being built up. Obviously, when you're lending out to everybody with no risk criteria, you're going to build up a lot of non-performing loans along the way, and you're going to have the seeds of a greater problem down the line. But in 2009, 2011, nobody was really talking about that. They were celebrating the fact that the Chinese had figured a better way of, uh, of reacting to the great financial crisis. And it was, very, uh, it was very tangible, even with meetings in the Chinese at that time. They went from uh, an attitude of you know, where the younger brother were learning to, to a very confident attitude at, at international conferences and tier two dialogues and, and simply interviews uh, or, or meetings with, with government officials. They said, look, look what we're doing, look where you're at. Um, well, that was a bit short-lived. I think, as we know. And, and the next phase of this was essentially 2012, 2014, when people started to really understand what the consequences were from that massive buildup of debt. You still had people, by and large, refusing to believe that there was a huge slowdown that uh, it was, it was coming. Uh, but you saw some, some telltale signs that the Chinese economy wasn't humming along uh, the way it used to. But at the same time, during this time, we were very loudly talking about the fact that there was not just a, a slowdown that was coming, that it was in the data already. Look at 2012, 2013, 2014. A China slowdown is here. And it's very, uh, it's very obvious when you look at the data. But most people didn't really want to hear that. They were impressed by the way China had avoided the great financial crisis repercussions on, its, on, on their face. And they were un willing at that point to say that a, a regime that was able to do decades and decades of great growth, uh, of historical growth, and, and maneuver around the great financial crisis the way they did, they were unwilling to say, these guys are, are not doing it right. And so I think you had a, a change of opinion over time, as particularly in 2013, after the interbank credit crunch, in 2014 as well. But really, things didn't quite hit home until last year. The story of 2015 is quite interesting. You know, we came into 2015, and, and the team at China Beige Book was talking about a moderate slowdown. But the data was actually relatively boring. Going into the summer, we saw a continued moderate slowdown. And almost overnight, consensus views on China's economy changed. Now, why did they change? Now, you had uh, three essential, three incidences, excuse me, episodes that convinced people that China was actually in bad shape after all. And the first, of course, was the mess with the stock market. Now, anyone who's done research in China, they should know by now, just reading the headlines, uh, there is no 
historical correlation between the performance of the stock market and the performance of the economy. Not in official data, not in China Beige Book data, not in other private data, but it still really worried people to see the stock market governance flubbed the way it was. And the Chinese doubled down, of course, in a very inopportune time, the weekend that Greece uh, exploded. And the stock markets, even though they gave an explicit backing to it, uh, dropped and it set off a, a maelstrom for, for the rest of the summer. Uh, and people were looking at that and they said, you know what? This worries me. Strike one. So then we got into August and a bunch of manufacturing PMIs. PMIs are the, the gauges, the purchasing managers index that a lot of the people in the uh, investor world look at. And all of a sudden, these manufacturing sector gauges came in really bad. Now, most people who do China uh, on, on a granular level understand that, that the manufacturing sector is one sector in China. It's not the microcosm. It's not the bellwether of China. It no longer represents the Chinese economy. You know, this is something we've been talking about for two to three years. But at the same time, the manufacturing sector data came in really weak, as in worse than it's been in years and years and years weak, and people got really scared of that. So strike two. Uh, the third strike was, of course, the, the currency devaluation. I put quotes around that. It wasn't really a devaluation. Later in the, later in the, in the month of August, when the Chinese decided to depreciate their currency uh, a couple percentage points. Now, if you look back at it, I think we can all agree that there was nothing theoretically unjustifiable about this. They had been seeing, seeing trade-weighted appreciation uh, of 20% over the past couple of years. The, the yuan was being massively, massively appreciated versus the rest of the world. Uh, but the problem was the communication policy. And the communication policy is bad. Nobody knew what was going on. Was it a currency war? Was it a uh, clandestine stimulus program? Nobody knew what it was. But I'll tell you what it was. It was third the third strike, three strikes. The markets went crazy. And you had what was essentially a global markets collapse for a number of weeks. Markets down 20, 30%, sometimes more. Now, why did this happen? This happened not because anything was fundamentally changing inside the Chinese economy from that quarter to the quarter before it. But it was because people can't look inside the Chinese economy and tell what's actually going on. Investors don't have visibility into what's happening. Policymakers don't have visibility into what's happening. So they're left to take anecdotal clues on whether the Chinese are acting competent or incompetent, whether they're doing a good job or bad, whether the new data coming in might be, might be great or might be terrible. And they're, they're guessing. And this has made things a lot more difficult uh, for the Chinese uh, to, to manage over time. Uh, now, of course, if you look at the, the end of the summer, uh, you know, we were talking about the fact that there'd be a, a recovery narrative. Of course there was. It was a faux recovery narrative. Um, but people left the, left the summer much more, you know, very nervous, but eventually saw better data, saw that China didn't collapse overnight, and became much more confident that China was actually in okay shape. And this recovery narrative came into play, and everyone thought, okay, well, maybe they're in great shape now. And then, of course, she went into January, and the markets crashed again based on a number of factors. The reason that I walk through that is nobody really knows what's going on. I mean, you do if you have some private data on this. You can see parts of it. But nobody really knows what's going on. It's a reaction. It's a very bipolar reaction, creating an enormous amount of volatility based on the idea that at any given time, China's either in great shape or it's about to collapse. And I think the one thing that we can definitely expect going forward is that this will continue on for the next few years. You're going to see rolling crises, some real, uh, some a matter of perception. 
but there are going to be crises from investors and from others who can't see into China's economy because of, the closed, because of its closed nature and are panicked and worried and eventually have to head for the door. Um, what I am often asked is, well, who cares? Because they can just stimulate their way out of this. I think there's a very important point here. The Chinese are at the end of the rope in terms of stimulus. And it's due to, to th essentially uh, two things. The first is they no longer, Chinese firms no longer want to borrow. And the second thing is Chinese firms no longer want to spend. Now, a third part of that, and we've seen this very recently in our data, is that firms are getting very, very uneasy about hiring and more aggressive about layoffs. But you're seeing these dynamics underneath the surface, and it's causing a major problem. Because traditionally, the Chinese government has simply gone in, and they dumped a ton of money in there. And yes, there was uh, hell to pay down the road. But essentially, they would give firms the capital and credit they needed in order to be able to make it to the next month or make it to the next quarter. Well, the problem here was Chinese borrowing is at an all-time low right now. If you look at the levels that we tracked from 2012 to 2016, the share of firms borrowing has dropped by about two-thirds. This has happened at the same time that interest rates have been falling, 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 by and large, since late 2014. And what it means is the Chinese are pumping more liquidity into their economy, rates are going down, credit is cheaper, and yet firms don't want to borrow. Now, how do you stimulate the economy if firms don't want to borrow? The other major problem is the firms don't want to spend. And this is, this is a good thing for China, uh, but it's a bad thing for growth. Uh, we made a very bold prediction back in the second quarter of 2014 when our report came out and said, this is probably the most important quarter for China this decade. People looked at us and said, what in the world are you talking about? You know, the gross numbers officially aren't that great. You know, we're not seeing anything here. It's a pretty boring quarter to us. But what we saw underneath the surface was that the share of firms that were actually growing their CapEx, that were increasing their investment spending, started a slide that quarter that has been a sea change in China ever since. Over the next year, after second quarter 2014, every one of our sectors, every one of our regions, Every type of firm, every firm size has seen a significant plummeting of CapEx growth. Firms are not wanting to spend anymore. Now, the reason they're not wanting to spend and the reason they're not wanting to borrow is they're looking at the uncertainty of the economy and going, uh-oh, we don't know what's coming next either. But it makes the job of the Chinese government much, much, much more difficult when they're dealing with a dynamic that has to do with firms that want to borrow, firms don't want to spend, and thus firms that don't want to be reactive to stimulus. Uh, what is the largest? problem here then. Uh, well, I think when I tell you what my forecast is for the Chinese economy, I think it's, it'll be easy to see what I don't think the problem is. The problem is not slowing growth. The best case scenario for China going forward is a significantly slowing economy. But they do the reforms needed, the restructuring they needed, the rebalancing needed. They stop misallocating capital. Uh, they stop uh, relying on debt fuel growth. China slows down over time. Worst case scenario, China slows down significantly over time. They do all the wrong things. They borrow too much. They increase their investment spending. They don't reform. They don't rebalance. They don't restructure. And you end up with what a lot of people fear will be a hard landing. But the key here is that the pie is baked. China is going to slow down significantly. So worrying about the fact that the Chinese economy is slowing down, of course, if you're a business there or an investor there, you have to worry about these things on a quarter-to-quarter, week-to-week basis. But generally speaking, worrying about the fact that Chinese economy is slowing down, what to do about it, what to do about it, is not very helpful because it will slow down significantly regardless. 
The more important question, and the thing that really will dictate China's fate here, is not whether they have a shadow banking collapse. It's not whether they have a stock market collapse. It's not whether there's some sort of bank run. It's whether the Chinese government loses credibility that they can complete the mission. And this is a problem right now. It's something that we've told them and many other people have told the leadership. If you keep putting out manipulated data, if you keep manipulating the, 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 the economic and political narratives, you're going to cause a lot of skepticism from people who are going to China. They're getting their own data. They're looking at what's happening. And the story for China, if it's telling the 7.5 and 7-ish percent growth going forward, maybe 6.5, where people who are actually going over there are seeing growth decelerate much more dramatically. You can get away with this for a while, but at some point you won't be able to. And based on what happened with the stock market and others, we're getting a lot closer to this time. So what the Chinese government should be worried about, and what we should all be worried about, is the fact that the Chinese government does not tell the correct narrative and it loses credibility that it's able to do the reform and restructuring and rebalancing needed in order to emerge out the other side. Uh, now, I, I want to conclude uh, this with, with what I see are the two ironies. And this ties in directly to the theme of economic authoritarianism and the growth model. The first irony is China has a massive way to go on the economic side. They have to fundamentally restructure their economy. And probably the only way they're going to be able to get from A to B successfully is by a very strong iron-fisted economic uh, authoritarian growth model or leadership model, which pushes the elites and pushes people to do things they would not other do, compels, them, compels restructuring, compels rebalancing, forces some degree of, uh, uh, of dislocations in the economy, but pushes the, the economy where it needs to go. But the second irony is this. By adopting an economic author or an authoritarian uh, pol political model and saying we are going to push China where it needs to go, you're creating the seeds of what could be a political dis disaster. Now, if you're in a democracy, as we're learning here and in Europe and everywhere else, if you don't like the guys in office, you throw the bums out. If you don't like the other guys, you throw them out. Bring someone new, you throw them out. Democracy has an inherent steam valve, a pressure valve, that can be released when you toss the guys out and you bring in new leadership. The Chinese government doesn't have that. And what they're doing right now in order to bring them from this period of uh, very difficult bring them through this economic transition is they're controlling information, they're manipulating data, they're cracking down on dissidents, they're cracking down on social media, and they're doing all these things that are causing potential social unrest and social disruptions. And if you combine that with the difficulty of a economic transition which calls for bankruptcies and unemployment and social unrest and defaults of uh, financial products, you're creating a very difficult stew. So, I'll leave you with this, with which I do not have an answer. Can China use this authoritarian growth model to push a very needed economic transition, but not go too far that they end up with a political disaster? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. John. Thank you, Eric, and um, thank you all for being here. I think Leland gave us a, a, an excellent uh, rundown on basically the way the Chinese economy has worked in the last... Uh, five, eight years or so. And the way he ended is a perfect segue into um, what I want to spend the next 15 minutes talking about. And I'm essentially going to look at this so-called Chinese authoritarian model, uh, how attractive it remains, uh, whether it's lost its once glowing 
uh, reputation as a genuine alternative model to the kinds of liberal democratic models that uh, we have grown accustomed to and we have grown uh, accustomed to seeing uh, as very successful. And this is not a trivial academic question. Uh, if you turn your minds back a few years ago, you remember all the talk was about Chinese uh, capitalism with Chinese characteristics. There was a talk about the Beijing consensus. Poor countries looked to China as a model uh, by which they themselves could raise themselves up the e economic uh, value chain. And this all gave China considerable uh, prestige. I mean, I remember uh, 2011, so five years ago, I had lunch with the Indian finance minister. And this guy is no strategic fan of China. He is no China, uh, Chinophile. But he said to me quite openly, somewhat grudgingly, but quite openly, you know, I have this grudging respect for the Chinese model. And when I said why, he said, look, they get things done. If they want to build something, they build it. If they have to make a decision, they make it. If they have to go to uh, one of their country's leading technocrats to make a decision or to come up for policy, they do that. They don't have to mess around with this democracy um, and, and these sorts of other uh, obstacles that policymakers and, and leaders generally have. So the bottom line was, if China has to do something, authoritarian China can do it. And I think this sums up um, the China model, or, or at least the perception of the China model, uh, very well. And I want to spend the next 10 minutes talking about whether this is really um, such a good thing as most people believe. Now, it is true, China can do things that no other political economy can do, or certainly no other liberal democratic economy can do. So in the past eight years, and Leland's been through some of these things, we've seen the largest uh, creation of credit and debt build up uh, in human economic history over an eight-year period in absolute and relative terms. So we're talking about the creation of US $30 billion uh, in this eight-year period, which incidentally is about twice the size of your entire commercial banking sector. Now, we've seen the biggest fixed investment increase of any other country or any country in economic history in this eight-year period. Despite one statistics that made around uh, last week in a media, in the Washington Post, I think it was, between 2001 and 2015, China um, um, used more cement than the whole American economy in the 20th century. Now, there's been more new housing built uh, in this period than any other eight-year period uh, in economic history, both in absolute and relative terms. So yes, the Indian finance minister was correct. China can do things that no other economy can do. And it is very directly because of its authoritarian system. Now, when advanced economy ex uh, export markets tanked in 2007 because of the economic turmoil, China responded with the largest stimulus in economic history. And it could do this for a number of reasons. One, it has a relatively close capital account, which means it's uh, pretty hard or it's difficult not impossible, but it's difficult for money to leave the country. The domestic sector is dominated by state-owned banks, meaning citizens have to deposit their savings and corporates have to deposit their savings in state-owned banks. And it means there's almost perfect savings capture in this financial capital system, uh, which doesn't exist in other countries. Now, two, unlike in our system, China can force state banks to lend. Now, this is done either through direct pressure uh, or through offering career incentives for uh, banking executives 
who are mainly CCP members. So if you lend when the government tells you to lend, um, it will help your career, uh, your political or your business career, um, your prospects increase accordingly. Now, three, state-owned enterprises, or SOEs for short, receive around 80% of all the formal bank loans in the country for a number of political and policy and commercial reasons. Now, this is great for stimulus because the government, in the same way, can force or incentivise SOEs to borrow and invest using the same kinds of pressures that they put on banks to lend. It's not always perfect, but, but um, it's much more... Uh, doable in an authoritarian system than it is certainly in our system. This is a very effective way in the short term to pump up investment to meet politically important growth targets um, which are issued every, every quarter. And for uh, local governments who are having fiscal problems. Now if you look at the Chinese fiscal system, and I'm defining local governments as everything beneath the central government, Local governments receive around 35-40% of the fiscal revenues uh, in the country, but they undertake around 75% of all the fiscal spending uh, in the country. So local governments saw this as a way of making up the, the shortfall, the revenue shortfall uh, that they suffer. So what did they do when credit became cheap? They set up local financing vehicles, essentially local government SOEs. They got some of the free or cheap credit on offer, and they ploughed the money um, largely into the real estate market. So this is what happened uh, in China. This is what produced the massive growth you saw. And once again, only authoritarian China can actually do this. Now, in an eight-year period, uh, local government officials evicted an estimated 40 million households from their land. They gave them inadequate or zero compensation for it. They rezoned the land uh, into... These, these lands were... Uh, rural lands. They rezoned the lands into rural or residential, sorry, into urban or residential uh, land. They went into partnership with property developers and they began building and building and building. So that's what drove the real estate boom uh, in the country in the last few years. Now you often hear the argument that this Chinese real estate boom uh, merely reflects the rapid urbanization that occurred in the country. Now that's just absolute nonsense. From 1980 to 1995, urbanisation increased at roughly the same rate as it's been increasing uh, in the last 10 years. And you take steel production for housing, which is a proxy for urbanisation. In that first period that I spoke about, 1980 to 1995, uh, crude steel production increased by about 5% a year, which sort of makes, makes sense. From 2008 to 2014, crude steel production tripled, so that's 300% increase. So from a genuine demand basis, obviously the mass doesn't add up um, with this whole housing boom. But the real estate boom was great for local governments. Um, by 2012, 2013, local governments were receiving 50% of their fiscal revenues from the real estate market. So imagine that. The government beneath the central government is receiving half of all their revenues from the real estate and property uh, sectors. So that's obviously uh, pretty unsustainable. And by the way, if you want to know why, um, or one reason why the growth in military spending was dramatically uh, slow this year, um, it's because the central government needed to cover some of the shortfalls uh, faced by the local government. And this is going to be a dynamic, incidentally, uh, that the local governments or the central government will continue to face. So at the moment, 
um, local governments financing vehicles or SOEs, they probably have a debt burden of around five five trillion US dollars, uh, which is about 50% of uh, China's GDP. Now, local governments simply just kept on borrowing uh, more and more to double down on these fixed investment and property sector, uh, property market sectors. The central government will periodically loosen credit again because it has no other way of generating growth. And as Leland said, it's becoming a less and less inefficient and effective way of generating growth. Now, local governments uh, continue to pour more or borrow more and more money for two reasons. When they need to pour more money into real estate for, because of their fiscal situation, that's the only way they know how to make up the shortfalls. And two, they need to borrow more and more to keep existing debt from defaulting, which would have runoffs in the whole financial system. So it's estimated now, no one really knows the true figure, but one in every three dollars borrowed by a local government entity is to manage existing debt. So one in every three dollars of new borrowings. So we can see it's clear that China's um, authoritarian government hasn't found a way to defy the laws of economics. It has shut down market and price signals by dictating what interest rates should be, uh, by making lending practices largely a matter of political uh, policy rather than commercial uh, policy. And this may be great in the short term. There are costs to all this. So investment is becoming a lot more inefficient, uh, three to four times more efficient now compared to what it was maybe 10 years ago. There's an enormous non-performing loan problem, which is really just kept hidden because Governments keep on forcing lending institutions to uh, uh, roll over maturing debt so it doesn't appear as a non-performing loan. But these problems do not go away. They will come back to, to bite um, that economy. And China will soon go through a very painful deleveraging process which uh, Japan went through. I'm not suggesting China will drop to 0% growth, but it will have to go through a very similar deleveraging process uh, like the Japanese. Now, um, on this session, or on this panel, uh, there's inherently a comparative question here. Sure, we know China has its problems, but so what? You know, doesn't every economy have its problems? I mean, does that really mean that um, the, the Chinese authoritarian model is as, uh, has lost as much prestige as, as we say it might? I'm going to give you two or three reasons why I think um, the authoritarian model, particularly the Chinese authoritarian model, uh, cannot recover the prestige that it once had uh, a few years ago. First reason, creative, creative destruction, letting good companies thrive and letting bad companies die. Now, private sector firms in China are around two to three times more efficient than SOEs by any measurement you want, return on investment, return on assets, uh, amount of capital need, need to generate employment, productivity, uh, whatever commercial uh, measure that you want. Yet, uh, private, the private sector firms receive less than one-fifth of all the formal bank loans in the country. SOEs receive around 80% uh, of all the formal bank loans in the country. They get it at cheap rates. Um, they benefit, benefit from billions in subsidies and tax breaks. They have exclusive access to government procurement markets. They even offered political and sometimes legal protection. Uh, and even then, it's estimated around half all the SOEs, central and local SOEs, don't make any profits at all, even after taking into account all of these benefits they receive. So imagine a waste of national wealth and opportunity 
that exist in this particular political economy. Now, you ask yourself, can China really become a middle-high or high-income country under these circumstances? No other country has been able to do it without a uh, efficient system of creative destruction. Uh, China certainly doesn't have that system. And you've got to have an economy that responds to market and price signals, but you don't get very good market and price signals because of these distortions in the Chinese economy. Now, the second reason, uh, poverty, poverty alleviation and living standards. Now, you would think that this would be the best possible argument recommending the China's authoritarian system because how often have you heard the phrase that you know, CCP and its policies have lifted millions and hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Now, what most people don't realise is that 80% of the poverty reduction that has occurred in China since 1979 occurred in the first 10 years of reform, 1979 to 1989. And if you look at what happened in the first 10 years of reform, economic growth was driven by land reform. So peasants, essentially, were given control of what they could do on their plot of land. Land was still owned by the government, but they could do whatever they wanted it. So they could grow whatever produce they wanted. They could even set up small industries if they wanted. They were allowed to sell these produce and products and services at market prices. This was really what drove um, the, uh, the, the economic growth in the first 10 years of reform. It wasn't planned by the party. The party was smart enough to let it go on. Uh, but this was the beginnings of industrialization and uh, a huge uh, ink spike in productivity in the country. This is when 80% of the poverty reduction took place. And the point I'm trying to make was, is that this was a period when the CCP was loosening its grip on the economy. Now, this uh, current state-dominated or state-controlled uh, political economy, this really arose from the late 1990s onwards, and a few things have happened. As you would expect, uh, SOEs have been the number one beneficiaries of this uh, economic structure. The suppression of the private sector has harmed household incomes, which have increased, but have increased slower than GDP growth and certainly slower than revenues of uh, SOEs. Uh, and in almost all state-dominated authoritarian political economies, well-connected insiders benefit largely at, at the expense of the majority. So China, in many ways, is now an oligarchy that resembles, say, what Russia has. China doesn't have the same political economic structure as Japan or South Korea or Taiwan or even Singapore. It's, in some ways, a bit more like Russia. So you look at the Chinese Communist Party, it's 85 million members strong. About 90% of these 85 million members are business elites, right? I mean, they're the ones who are benefited. So if you look at measurements like the Gini coefficient, which measures distribution of income, what most people don't realise is that China is now the most unequal country in all of Asia. It is actually more unequal than America. If you look at all of the low-middle-income countries around the world and the middle-income countries around the world, China is more unequal than any of them except for the oil-rich middle-state countries. So think about it. Under these conditions, how is China going to manage this so-called consumption-driven transition uh, as, as a driver of growth. To do that, you'd have to raise household incomes dramatically. To raise household incomes, you'd have to dramatically increase the wealth and opportunity available to the private sector and to normal households. 
But the whole authoritarian model right now is based on offering insiders privileged access to the economic opportunities or the best economic opportunities in the country. Now, a third reason, China cannot become a high-income country without institutions. So I'm talking about rule of law, intellectual property rights, and, and proper property rights, independent courts, independent processes of arbitration, um, which allow you to take SOEs to courts and have a decent chance of, of getting away if the law demands it. As the CCP knows full well, you cannot implement these things and, re and remain in power. I mean, that has been a record of every other East Asian successful economy uh, in a region. So to end, the American system has its problems. My country, Australia, uh, has its problems. But the difference is that these systems can endure a downturn. They can cope with changes of government. They can cope with the collapse of a 160-year-old bank like Lehman Brothers. Our economic and political system does not collapse when there is necessary reform or change. I'm not saying they will undertake reform and change, but they do not collapse when there is necessary reform and change. So we're discovering now that as um, China got richer and stronger, it has also become, in many ways, more brutal, or at the very least, the party has become uh, more brutal. So China may be in some sort of authoritarian transition to, to whatever it is, but if there is genuine reform, and I grieve Leland, the Chinese Communist Party will not like the look of what genuine reform looks like. Um, and if the CCP doesn't let go of power, um, it stands the risk of losing control. But uh, you know, how many authoritarian governments willingly uh, let go of power? I think that's China's dilemma. So I'm going to stop there. Um, and Eric, hand it back to you. Terrific. Thank you very much. Um, thank you. Um, both, uh, both Leland and John have said that no questions are beyond the pale today, so uh, I would like to open it up to a general conversation with the audience. Before we do, I, I'm really curious, for those of us who don't have a long business position in China and in China's economy, we still, as a country, uh, have a very significant interest in China's political development and the continuation of the 30 years peace in the Asia-Pacific. So I wanted to ask both of you if you could speculate just a little bit about how the current economic troubles that China is facing might affect the kinds of decisions that the party state may face in the coming years. Both of you did a little bit. And then also to, to address the question, well, what are the implications of this for China's strategic conduct and its relations with uh, the United States and, of course, its neighbors in the Asia-Pacific? Want to take a first stab at that? Sure. Thanks. Uh, usually when you talk about uh, how China's government is going to handle uh, a slowing economy from a global perspective, you, you look at two potential danger lines. And the first, of course, is that uh, they'll do something stupid in order to distract people from what's going on in the, in the home front. That's, that's a much uh, discussed possibility. And the other thing that people talk about, uh, but not enough, uh, is the idea that uh, with so many different problems for President Xi to be working with, uh, working on, that he will be distracted or he will let certain groups run loose, and that could very well be what was happening the last several years in the South China Sea, uh, at least at the beginning. Uh, and so you have the potential of a distracted leadership or leadership motivated to create international uh, problems in order to distract from the from the, the problems at home. 
Sure, uh, that's that's something that we're going to have to watch watch for dramatically, and I think it's the responsibility of of other nations, United States principally, to be making very clear that there are lines that cannot and should not be crossed. Uh, I think one of the major problems we've seen in the last several years is the Chinese have an idea of what we don't like, but they don't have an idea of what we think is unacceptable. And as a result, you're seeing a lot of actions in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, and elsewhere. And by we, I don't just mean the United States. Uh, uh, as a result, you're seeing Chinese behavior that, that we complain about, but we don't do anything about. And so I think going forward, it'll be very important for other governments to be signaling what is acceptable, what isn't acceptable. Uh, in the international space. And um, if we don't do that, I think that, that the chances of conflict skyrocket. Sean? Um, in terms of the impact on the party state, we're seeing an impact already, and I hinted at it in, in my comments, but it's a fiscal situation. If you look at the last 20, well, if you go back to the last 20 years um, prior to 2014, so 2013 and before the last 20 years before that, Fiscal revenues for the government uh, were going up about 20% a year, right? So if your fiscal revenue is going up 20% a year, life is pretty good. You can spend your money pretty much on anything you want. So fiscal expenditure was going up 20% a year and fiscal revenue was going up 20% a year, but, you know, there's a lot of spending going on. Look at the last couple of years. Fiscal revenue has been going up, this is for the central government, about... Um, in, double, in single digits, so you're talking maybe 7 8%. I don't know, this year it, might, it may be 5 6 7 7%. Now, if you look at the central government's budget, up after transfers to the local government, it spends 40% on national security. National security, I'm including the People's Liberation Army, the Professional Army, and the People's Armed Police, which is the internal military terrain uh, army which uh, controls domestic unrest throughout the country. So they spend 40, central government, 40% of their budget is spent on national security. Now, their fiscal revenues are closely tied to the industrial activity and commercial activity in the country. It's not tied to household income or income taxes. It's, it's on economic activity, right? So fiscal, re fiscal revenues will continue to slow. Um, and you look at the demands on the central government purse. I mean, you've obviously got the various bailouts of the local government entities that I spoke about. But even if you look at things like an ageing China. Now, right now, China spends about half um, the level in relative terms on um, social goods that other low-middle-income countries in Asia spends. Basically, the central government in, in the last 20 years has just said, we're not going to worry about that kind of stuff. We want to spend it on national security. They can't do that anymore. So this is why this year was the first time you've had uh, growth in the, um, spending on a PLA uh, fall to, I think it was about 7%. That still sounds like a lot, but that's going to go down. They're going to have to make some very difficult strategic choices and hardware capability choices, which they haven't had had to make uh, for a long time. Now, in terms of the external impact, you know, I come from a region where, up until very recently, we love the Americans being around. We hope the Americans stay around forever. We hope America remains the preeminent power. But the psychology in the region until recently was, look, we want the Americans to hang around as long as they can, but, you know, China's the future. China's going to dominate Asia inevitably. So for the moment, we'll kind of hedge a little bit, but inevitably China will grow to dominate. That psychology is gone now. 
I think the region now realises that China is a big, formidable country, but America and other countries like Japan have to make some very bad decisions, which is always possible, um, for China to actually dominate. But this allows smaller countries like Australia, like Singapore, the Southeast Asian countries, to come up with um, a whole suite of bolder uh, balancing strategies, which you're starting to see in the region. So immediately there's been a psychological change which will lead to uh, actual strategic change if China keeps on behaving the way it has, which I suspect they will. Let me open this up um, to a wider conversation. Um, when the mic comes around, if you could please uh, uh, note for the record uh, your affiliation and uh, please keep your questions short. Sir, in the back. Masahiro Sakamoto, Japan Forum on International Relations. Uh, I have a question on the uh, Dr. Miller. Um, as you mentioned, the China, as you see, economy turned quite a different phase since the later half of 2014. Uh, a typical example is that foreign reserves dropped from four, $4 trillion to $3 trillion. And uh, George uh, Soros predicted financial hard landing of China. But uh, recent indication, uh, February figure, uh, shows some kind of moderate, moderating, you see, de decline. So there's some, some sentiment that the Chinese government now is successful to managing this, this hard, line, hard landing. But uh, how you think of this, uh, you see? Uh, especially uh, sharp decline of foreign reserves. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, we think George Soros is wrong. Uh, I don't think a hard landing is, is, is baked in the cake. I think George is trying to make a few dollars uh, the way he always does, and, and that's fine. But uh, China, from a hard landing perspective, if China makes the wrong decisions, you can have a hard landing. Uh, it's, it's not the, the, the default scenario in our book, and it's not baked into the cake in any way, shape, or form. Uh, your specific question was about Forex reserves, about capital outflows. And that's a great question. It's, it's something that until about six months ago, nobody wanted to talk about. Now it's all anyone really wants to talk about. Um, our view on this is, is, is twofold. The first is um, people who evaluate this problem often use the wrong numbers. They talk about the Forex reserves, they talk about, which are now 3.2 trillion-ish. Uh, they talk about this number created by a bunch of IMF guys that was 2.7 trillion, under which you had a real catastrophic problem in your economy. And people have sort of have basically extrapolated the idea that, well, if you're losing 100 billion a month, and you've got 700 billion of, of a window, then you've got six months left, and, and, and it created this math that doesn't really exist. So uh, what I'll say to this is the math being used is wrong. The math that should be used in terms of Forex reserves is actually Forex inside the banking system, not the Forex reserves themselves. Um, China, as a command economy, as an authoritarian economy, as a non-commercial economy, has the ability to, to move capital around within its economy, within its financial system, like water in a bathtub. Now, this is a terrible idea. There are long-term implications. Uh, it's not costless. But at the same time, if you're talking about an immediate crisis, it's something that they can much easier act to avoid than, say, the United States or, or, or Europe. Uh, the other issue is, at, at what point do the reserves become, this reserve level, uh, become problematic? 
And the answer is nobody knows. Nobody knows. Uh, the, the calculations that have been done on this by the IMF in the past were based on economies that were, did not look like China, that were not the size of China. Uh, a lot of the argument that China is going to go into a spiral and then have a forced evaluation on it is based on the idea that panic will create a situation where you hit 2.7 trillion, which will cause panic, and then you'll keep going. It's a very circular argument. So uh, our position at China Beige Book, my position personally, is that that China, China could always do something stupid. They've done a lot of stupid things in the last year, in fact, in the stock market and their economy and otherwise. But there is no uh, necessary outcome that is forced devaluation. There is no uh, ticking time bomb on their forex reserves that has to happen. Uh, there's no hard landing that's baked in the cake. And so a lot of people who are doing this are, in fact, like George Soros, who have money on the line and, and to some degree talking their book. So uh, we, we respectfully disagree. Wilson, uh, Chief Economist at the uh, Heritage Foundation. Uh, excellent presentation, by the way, by both gentlemen. Uh, I recently lived in China for over three years, and uh, Mr. Lee had a lot of uh, statistics. That was a problem for me, living in China, getting reliable statistics. One you had mentioned that was that private companies are two to three times more efficient than SOEs. That's, that's no surprise. But uh, the, the numbers we get even from private companies in China is, is rubbish. There's no correlation between net cash flow and net pro, and, and reported net profits. I'm just curious of all the stats you've uh, quoted. What are the data sources? The main data source for that, um, there's a um, consultancy in Hong Kong called Asianomics, and two years ago, so it's two-year-old data, they did a an in-depth survey of about 5,000 private companies um, and of about 200 SOEs. So it's from that. I mean, I, I acknowledge that stats, good stats are impossible. But the point I make, it doesn't really matter whether it's 2 or 3 or 1.5 or whatever. What I'm really trying to say is deserving companies should get credit, and in China, deserving countries do not get credit. So, look, if I was doing a bank or banking Excel spreadsheet model, yeah, I mean... I, I, you know, you can't, in, in the sense that you can't sort of base, you can't get solid numbers. But my more general point um, is that private companies tend to do a lot better. And maybe one reason why they do better is because they're suppressed, right? But they don't get the, the uh, opportunities that they should in the system, broadly speaking. Just add one thing to that since your question was about data. Um, typically, people who have, have tried to do the best they can based on what's out there and, and have looked at, at, at statistics maybe not believing them, but believing the directionality. Um, now, what we're doing right now is something with thousands and thousands of firms every quarter in the economy, and uh, the, the private sector versus state sector issue, which has been important before, is becoming absolutely critical, because what we're finding is that there are very dramatic decisions being made differently between state, state sector and, and private sector firms. And, and not to release a tidbit early, but our new, our new data comes out at the end of the month. We're leaking it. And, and one of the main themes is how private sector firms right now, as in the month of March 2016, and, uh, uh, which our data is from, uh, are acting very differently than, uh, than, firms on the, than firms on the state side. So uh, it's, it's a hard picture to paint. You know, you put together a lot of pieces that don't always fit, but at the same time, better and better data is coming out to be able to track this finally. 
enjoyed the presentations like everybody else. Uh, I'd like to ask a question more about the, oh my, sorry, I'm Michael Yehuda from uh, George Washington University. Um, I'd like to ask a question about the political side of the political economy. And what we've seen since Xi Jinping has come in is a huge concentration of power. Um, he uh, is, as someone once described him, he's a chairman of everything. And as chairman of everything, obviously he can't concentrate on everything. Uh, so what he seems to be doing is uh, focusing a great deal on first the anti-corruption campaign, uh, which many see as uh, a rather self-serving campaign in which uh, he manages to get rid of uh, opponents, either actual or potential. And this is having an effect on the uh, bureaucracies in China of making uh, bureaucrats much more cautious about uh, taking uh, decisions which could land them later on in trouble. Much better to keep a low profile and not raise your head above the parapet. And um, the kind, what I get from the, what, what you're saying is really what is required right now in China is uh, people at the very top who are conscious of the kinds of problems you have addressed, who are uh, equipped and able to take some of these tough decisions. So could you comment a little bit on how you see the Xi Jinping um, control of uh, politics, and where do you think this is going to lead? Excellent question. John? Look, I'll start this first principle. I mean, you know, every Secretary General of the party since Mao Zedong, the number one priority is not to increase power or to make the country richer, it's to keep the Chinese Communist Party in power, right? So that's beginning with that principle. So the anti-corruption campaign is very much about keeping the CCP in power. As, as you probably know, prior to Xi Jinping, um, corruption or perception of corruption by officials was identified as the number one thing that could bring down the party. <coughs> so if you look at who Xi Jinping has gone after, one, he has gone after political en enemies, that's true. He's gone after um, um, some uh, officials that stand away of his policy preferences, right, to, to, to implement policy much, much more effectively, etc. But Xi Jinping, uh, President Xi cannot do anything that will ultimately weaken the position of the party. And my main scepticism of, um, of you know, reform in China, whether it's through an anti-corruption campaign or other, other tools or other policies, is that if you look at the basis of the CCP's power, since the late 1990s, it has been to ensure that they remain the primary dispensers of economic opportunity in the country. Right? They remain in control of the economic levers of the country. SOEs have to be very closely tied to the Chinese Communist Party. They remain a form of patronage. Destroy that system, and I think you basically destroy the Chinese Communist Party. You end up walking the track of a country like Japan or South Korea or even Singapore these days. So, yeah, I mean, most outside observers say this anti-corruption thing is a good thing because it gets rid of corrupt. I mean, first of all, there's corruption everywhere systemic. The second thing is, if you look at where, you know, where, if you look at um, 
the, the areas where she hasn't gone after. I don't know of anyone in financial sector that's been pushed, that's been caught in, in corruption stuff. I mean, you're telling me there's no corruption in the financial sector in China. So what I'm trying to say is that I don't really myself see any way that she can reform the system in a way that keeps the party in power, and that's the ultimate dilemma. Um, you know, I, 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 don't actually, I don't know what the solution is for the CCP. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take the other side of that. Um, I think he can, but I think what it'll take is a Herculean effort to overcome consensus decision-making. Now, everything that President Xi has done to this point has been about whether you, you could say the, the corruption campaign certainly was necessary and needed for the party and for the economy, uh, what it's also done is consolidate power around President Xi. And I think that the proof will be in the pudding in 2017 when he, when he creates the, uh, the standing committee around him and whether you're looking at seven people who are all pre uh, President Xi's confidants on that, party, uh, on that party slate. But I think that the idea here is that President Xi, I think, very much understands the gravity of the situation, and that there is a crisis now, not just an approaching crisis, and that there, fundamental change needs to be hoisted on the economy. The problem is, is that not enough is happening. Reform is not going well right now. Uh, I could find ways to compliment the Chinese and their refusal to backtrack into heavy stimulus. You know, if Goldman ran the economy, then they would have done that. Uh, but at the same time, uh, reform has not been going well. And the two theories on this is either President Xi is not up for the task or he is very diabolically uh, waiting for consolidation in 2017 when he will have control of the levers of power in a more fundamental way and be able to then uh, enact this reform platform if it's not too late. Nobody knows what it is right now. Uh, but I, I, I will say that I don't, uh, I don't think it's an impossible task, but I wouldn't want to be the one to have to thread this needle. As we saw recently, there was this uh, letter, open letter by loyal Communist Party members uh, asking for Xi Jinping's resignation. Well, it's difficult to analyze that, but it's clearly had a lot of viral uh, symbolic significance in China. And it's significant and expressive of the growing frustrations in China with um, the Communist Party and its stewardship of the economy, amongst other things. And partly because of the fact that higher-ups, these competent people that you refer to in the party, don't quite know which way the wind is blowing. That kind of political disarray and dysfunction may make it very difficult for Communist Party members to make the decisions needed to be able to steer the party out of this mess. And it's quite likely that it could aggravate and compound the problems that they're facing. Um, sir, here in the uh, front row, The presentation. My understanding is that the Chinese growth miracle was premised on the creation of urban environments for the migration from the countryside. And I guess that's stalled, and that's why they've switched now to saying we're going for a demand driven economy instead of an investment driven economy. What, what is actually happening with the migration itself? Has the migration reversed? Has the migration stalled? My, my, um, yeah, I mean, this idea that urbanisation was driving this infrastructure building is just wrong. The idea was build and they'll come. And in, the fact, in, in fact, a lot of the fixed investment infrastructure uh, uh, activity going on was creating urban environments, if you know what I mean. So it wasn't built to... It wasn't a demand-driven thing. It was a supply-driven thing. 
And the problem is that they're running out of money, um, or capital anyway, or appetite to, to, to do this stuff. So urbanisation is, is um, slowing somewhat. I mean, just a, a thing on urbanisation statistics, they were always a little bit inaccurate because they tended to include the migrant workers, you know, who would come and, and work on the construction sites and then go back. Right, they're not actual urban residents. So if you, if you minus those uh, hundreds of millions of migrant workers, urbanisation was always proceeding a lot slower than, than most people realise. I mean, you know, if you think about urbanisation, like rural areas don't just urbanise by themselves. You know, you, you need to set up industries and, and, and you need to set up local economies and these sorts of things. That's not proceeding as uh, vibrantly. As, as it was always made out. So urbanisation was a little bit overstated, I think, and was largely based on a build and that will come sort of attitude, um, and that's not happening anymore. And I'll, I'll go even farther on that. I think urbanisation is the most overused and misunderstood word by China watchers of anything. It even beats out rebalancing. Uh, because urbanisation is not a a solution for China's growth worries. Urbanization is a plan by which you can create, well, by which you move people to a certain place and you create growth. Now, if urbanization is done well, then you, you force these, this migration and productivity gains come from it and urbanization is a net win. If urbanization is done wrong, then you have even more money down the drain. So one of the things that people came out of this, I think series a couple years ago on urbanization and how it's going to fix China. It was pretty amusing because people saw this as a, you know, like a mad lib. You just sort of put in urbanization as a solution for, for, for China's woes. Uh, urbanization done well can help. Urbanization done poorly will hurt. Uh, but either way, we're talking about a, a multi-decade type of transformation, and that will not be in time to head off what China currently has on its plate right now. So it's important. I think it's misunderstood, but I think it's also going to be secondary to whatever type of environment we see over the next couple of years, because we're talking much more long-term with urbanization. What is happening to the movement of people? Are the people still moving from the countryside to the cities, or are they moving back? I suppose that they're actually moving back because they're actually moving jobs. Yeah, it's a job thing. I mean, once again, if, you know, I think Leland expressed more than I did, but what I was really trying to say is urbanization, in a sense, is a symptom. Right? If, if, if people move to an area because there's lots of jobs and industries and so on, that becomes urbanisation. To, to kind of say, you know, urbanisation will, will, will kind of fix this and that, it, it just doesn't make sense. So to answer your question, yeah, I mean, in the past, people from poorer areas moved to bigger cities because there were jobs there. But as construction activity has slowed down, etc., there are no jobs. Um, so, so you don't move away from, from where you are at the moment, and therefore you don't get, you know, lots of other services and things being built that you normally associate with uh, urbanization. And, and, and just one last point. Urbanization isn't monolithic. You've got a giant country. And what we're seeing right now, for instance, is, is, is uh, a, plan, uh, a movement out of the north, the industry-heavy north. That's not a surprise. But you're also, in some places, seeing an, uh, a movement out of big cities because things are too expensive. So you can be having these two-way flows. Um, I, I have not seen any data, and certainly we don't have it, that shows that it's, it's going in one direction and it's having X result.
Elliot Wolf. Um, I think the most important contributor I can contribution I can make is talk about some uh, meetings that I had last uh, November uh, with some prominent uh, Chinese officials, and I'd like to phrase them in terms of questions, and I'll be brief. Um, my understanding is that in 2015 there was an announcement that the focus of industrialization will move towards the second tier of uh, of the country. The the it's hard to compare United States and Chinese numbers, but the, the next uh, middle level, let's call it, um, and the intensity of the development will be obviously a smaller scale, but uh, with the intention of maintaining the industrialization and distributing it more, both for purposes of, uh, well, I'll stop with that. The second question uh, is there's been a tremendous uh, development of uh, international support by the Chinese for very large projects all around uh, at least the vicinity of China into Israel and, and uh, Vietnam and and, and um, uh, those also are investments as opposed to income or revenue producing activities at this stage but their objective is to produce uh, not only improved international relations, but also um, uh, financial return. And what do you think of these two developments? Uh, okay, I'm going to be sort of cynical here. Uh, the first is, is that uh, the Chinese should absolutely be moving their manufacturing chain upwards. Uh, where's the evidence? Now, the Chinese say a lot of things. They say they're going to do layoffs. They say they're going to do uh, cutover capacity. They say they're going to move their manufacturing chains. If that's indeed happening, uh, then that's fantastic. Uh, the question is, is, is it happening? Um, and I don't, I don't see much evidence that it's happening yet, although I would hope it is. Uh, the, the second question is, 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 is quite interesting because it's, it harkens back to the discussions we were having over a Asia Infrastructure Bank uh, a few months, uh, a year ago, uh, and of course, One Belt, One Road. What I'll say about that is the Chinese are fantastically terrible at producing projects efficiently and cost-effectively. So the idea that the Chinese are going to create this outward uh, apparatus and hire their own firms and, and essentially export goods and services to these countries and, and loan them the money to do it and create a cost-efficient model to make this happen, uh, I, you know, I'm an optimist, but that not that much of an optimist. Uh, so I think what I would say to that is there are reasons they think they have to do it. They don't think they have demand at home. They have to create demand abroad, and then they'll build the sidewalks to get them there. Uh, but at the same time, the idea that this is going to be a some sort of economically thriving, economically interesting project, I, I think, is wildly optimistic. Uh, much, you know, this is why it was so funny talking to policymakers who were who were. Uh, so nervous about Asian Infrastructure Bank and look at all the Chinese thing, the plans abroad, they're going to take over the world. No, they're going to spend a lot of money and they're going to do it very badly. And hopefully it helps their economy more than it hurts them, but I wouldn't bet on it. So. Yes, very quickly. I mean, the movement from first to second tier, I mean, the problem is, you know, if you build a six-lane highway between Shanghai and Beijing, you get productivity gains. Build a six-way highway between two, two second-tier cities, you get no productivity gains. No one uses it. So what I'm saying is it all sounds good in theory that you kind of transfer what, what you achieved in the eastern um, cities, you know, further inland, you get all these big, get great gains, but it just doesn't happen. That's, that's just, there's no demand for it. On, the, um, on your second question, I mean, yeah, I mean, the Chinese are trying to export the excess capacity, right, because 
They've got access capacity in every way, and they're trying to export it around the region. But I agree, they're terrible at doing that. I mean, you take a country like my country. Australia's a pretty good place to invest in. The Chinese have gone big into our commodity sector. This was even during the commodities boom. And there was all these fears about the Chinese overtaking um, you know, Australian mining, etc. The Chinese have made massive net losses in Australian mines when everyone else has made a truckload of money. They're not, you can't just pour money at stuff. Um, look, my attitude to the Australian government was, take it, you know. It's, it's fine. I mean, it's, it's not a problem for us at all. Because they, they, you can't just pour money at stuff and expect to make money, which is kind of the conception people have of the Chinese going outward. And just one extra point to add on to that. Keep in mind, too, that with the capital account closing down and all of these restrictions with what you can do with, with uh, capital inside China, a lot of what's going on right now is the Chinese just trying to engineer clever ways of getting their capital out of the country. And a lot of it's not even driven by profits or, or, or anything else or value. So there's a lot going on right now. Not all of it is, is uh, and I would say very little of it is actually economic in nature. A lot of the analysis of One Belt, One Road is focused on the so-called geopolitical ambitions of China. But there's obviously a very strong argument to be made that it's primarily being driven by domestic political and economic calculations. And as we know, one of the big megatrends of PRC moving capital through its domestic portfolio um, uh, has been an effort to sort of build up the interior and the western cities in China. And to do that, it requires export routes. It requires landlines of communication as opposed to the sea lines of communication which sustain the rise of China's eastern seaboard for the last 30 years. And building those landlines of communication obviously provides a good rationale for investing very heavily in SOEs and these other underperforming political economic arrangements. And it's also, I think, a very strong indication that there's not a lot of people in Beijing who are willing to take the political move necessary to pursue real reform. Um, uh, so OBLR on so many different levels is an expression of the fact that the that the planners are going to continue business as usual to, as in, in an effort to steer themselves out of this crisis. We'll see if these investments amortize, but I think it's quite likely that they won't. Uh, in, in the back. Uh, sir. Yeah. Elton, I wonder, uh, everybody who's been telling the Chinese you have, I think we all have, that the economy needs to be rebalanced, uh, that it needs to become less investment-focused and should be more based on domestic demand, etc. All that would lead to uh, the conclusion that it may be inevitable that growth, uh, growth rates decline considerably, and in and of itself, not addressing the transition problems, both of the international investment community and the domestic, and the domestic uh, people, it, it might be a good thing. Yeah, it's absolutely a good thing. If it doesn't happen, bad things are going to happen to China. So uh, it was one of the, the points I, I made, perhaps too subtly or, uh, earlier, was that China needs to slow down. China will slow down. That's going to happen. The question is the comp composition of it and the intensity of it, and whether they're engineering a slowdown or whether it's happening to them and the situation's outside their control. Um, you know, we haven't talked about rebalancing uh, in a focused way so far, but I, I would say that 
the way the Chinese are doing it uh, is, again, some things are some things are pushing and some things they aren't pushing. If you look at what's happening in the stock market, they're essentially, I mean, it's a disaster. They're essentially telling, and they just doubled down on this this week, telling individuals to lever up and to jump into the stock market to reflate corporate balance sheets. Now, that is the opposite of reversing financial repression. I mean, that is, that is helping financial repression, and financial repression is actually uh, what reform is meant to combat. Uh, on the other side, their currency policy is, uh, has surprised people. Uh, I think not us, but I think it surprised a lot of people because they wanted to keep the yuan much stronger. And what a stronger currency does is it puts more purchasing power in, your, in the pocketbooks uh, of households, allows them to buy more. So they're doing certain things well, they're doing other things poorly. And it's why whenever someone asks uh, a particular question about is rebalancing happening, the answer is yes and no. Uh, but I think the slowdown is, 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 is inevitable. That's two very quick comments. I mean, I was not encouraged by the fact that uh, at the National People's Congress, they gave another 6.5% growth target, right? And I'm not encouraged by that because they cannot tolerate a slowdown. I mean, it's not going to be 6.5. Officially, we know it's going to be 6.5 because that's what everyone will say it will be. But we know it's not going to be 6.5. But the fact that they wanted to deliver another high-growth target tells me that their mind space is in a different... Um, um, you know, it's, it's not in the right mind space. Second, um, if you, you want to massively increase consumption or private consumption, what do you do? You have to massively increase household income. How do you do that? You've got to open up opportunities for the private sector. Is that really happening? Not, not, certainly not rapid enough. You go to the woman in the back who's been patiently waiting. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Jean Nguyen with Voice of Vietnamese Americans. I thank the presenters, very um, insightful. And so I come back to the statement that you made. This is a long-term terminal decline. And if it, it, it could be either choices. That would be a balanced reforms, if reforms is happening meaningfully. And so far you have concluded up to now that there's no meaningful reform happening yet. And then the second choice is political chaos or disorders will happen because of the widened gaps between the unequal, the rich and the poor. And I would say that the U.S. had come in and helped China to alleviate poverty. And we probably can take credits for that, the U.S., since the 1970s till now. And you said the most happening was between 79 and 89. That's when the most poverty being alleviated, thanks to the fact that the CCP has loosening its grips to the people and let them do it on their own. I would like to come back and, and say that Deng Xinping at the time also said they would improve economy, but not political reforms. He made that clear. And then in 89, the Tiananmen Square also made it clear to the world that the U.S. backed that up. Did we not? So now, coming back to this point of view, you just said that China has the AIIB and many other projects around the world, Vietnam included. And I concur that many programs, projects in Vietnam supported by China has gone very badly. They now stopped doing it and they demanded the Vietnamese government to pay them more a hundred or four hundred times more for them to continue or the project is gone. 
the same with Middle East, Central Asia, and Africa, and many others. So globally, it's impacting us, the whole world, and the U.S. as well. So this point, is there a suggestion from your view that we can support the other half of rebalancing, which is political reforms? Now, this comes back to the 1.3 billion, 1 billion tree of Chinese people. You said in the beginning that there's only 70 million of communist members, and many of them have recently suggested the change other reforms in the party and they frustrated because there's no reforms. Is there a better way that we can converge a help to change given the situation in the East China Sea, the South China Sea, and North Korea right now? Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Um, uh, I'll say that the way you deal with the South China Sea and other things like that is you set lines, real red lines, not fake red lines, and you say this is unacceptable, uh, and you sail your ship inside 12, uh, it's at 12 nautical miles each and every time, and you send an absolute signal that this is not going to happen. So on that side of that, in terms of, uh, terms of uh, assisting the, the Chinese economy, I think the most helpful we can be is, is when, when, when these smart people are, are asked for their opinion and, and when delegations travel to, to, to Beijing or, or Beijing the delegations here in New York, uh, you tell them that, that this idea that you can have GDP growth targets or growth should be the focus, cut the narrative. The, the economic narrative right now is matched to the political narrative. It's not true. You do not have 6.5% growth. You probably have about half of that. But as long as the party thinks that, that backing that and doubling down and tripling down and quadrupling down is the way to go, you're actually threatening Chinese credibility in the medium and long term. And by doing that, I referred to it in my talk uh, earlier, uh, by threatening Chinese credibility, you're actually creating a serious danger that people are going to look at this and say, this is not a leadership up for the job. What they should do right now is enact reform, take pain, take a lot of pain, take more pain, and the United States should be there supporting them and telling them they're doing the right thing. Uh, very quickly and finally, I guess, um, political reform. Look, you don't get very far in a conversation political reform with Chinese, but my, my recommendation is always you push institutions, right? You say, we, we want you to have rule of law, that your party is under the rule of law. We want you to uphold property and intellectual property rights. We want you to have independent courts. The point I'm making is that the Chinese themselves know that's what they need. And look, I personally think, and the evidence of history tells you, implement those things properly. You cannot hold on very long to a one-party state. But if you just have a discussion about political reform, I mean, they'll just shut the door and there will be, will be no discussion. So push institutions. Thanks. We've run out of time, so I have to formally conclude this. But I uh, uh, hope that you all will come back when we reconvene the next time. And uh, uh, I wanted to thank both of our speakers today for sharing their knowledge and insights. Thank you very much. And thank you all for coming.